Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. It is Friday, May 13th, and this is the Executive Girlfriends Group, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Nancy Clark. And Nancy is the author of 18 Holes for Leadership, How a Round of Golf Can Make You a Better Leader. Nancy, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, tell us where you live, what what you've been doing uh, prior to becoming an author, and then we'll talk a little bit about the book. Well, I'm happy to do so, and thank you so much for having me on the program today. So I'm pleased to to provide whatever information I can to help folks and organizations. Um, my background is actually I grew up in a family business, and after college and graduate school, went on to work primarily with Arthur Anderson and ended up leading a consulting practice with um, Arthur Anderson and then decided to leave um, in 1998 before they melted down. Fortunately, I left early. Um, And from there have had my own consulting firm for the last uh, 13 years or so. So maybe 13 is a lucky number. So today's Friday the (laughs) 13th in 13 years. So (laughs) I don't know. but So that's a little bit of my background. Okay, great. Well, what brought you to the place where uh, you stepped off the edge of the precipice called becoming an author? That's probably that's a very good question. Well, <laughs> I, I can say it with uh, with great confidence because I've done the same thing. So every everything that you thought was true about writing a book and then later later found out <laughs> was not true at all. Um, I think it was probably because I was traveling so much and being on planes and doing work and um, sort of that creative spirit sort of came out. So from a creative standpoint, I think that's where it was, um, or maybe it was frustration. Um, but sitting there on the plane and just started to, to basically write and jot some ideas down, but doing much more just as a creative sort of outlet for me. Um, right. I and spent, did, you st- did you decide on the allegorical uh, metaphor style uh, ahead of time? Uh, did you say, okay, well, what if I could write a book in this, or is that just the way the creativity manifested itself? I started writing it that way. And then about halfway through, I wasn't very diligent about it because it was more just being more of a hobby than anything <clears throat> or a creative relief. And then um got more serious about it because I, I continued to write it and ended up talking to some other um, management consultants. And they were convincing me that I really needed to write a book. And so then I thought, well, I, I have to write something more serious. Um, or more, you know, academic, more intellectual or something. Right. And so I started, I sort of put what I, the book aside and started writing something else. And then I had a couple people review it. And they said, well, those are all really great concepts and we really like it, but it's really boring. <laughs> so I said, well, okay. So I sort of threw that away and said, let me just go back to what I was really enjoying writing and infuse it with these, these things and make it hopefully a little bit more clear on terms of, what does it take to be a leader and you know what do you need to do well with your permission i'd like to read just the the first paragraph of the introduction because i i think that uh, you you probably wouldn't tell these things about yourself but i think it's a really good way uh to lead into this so it begins i regularly bristle at the typical condescending statements from business people about the soft stuff They generally mean the people elements of the business, such as talent management, training, coaching, communication, etc. I, too, was once like them. 
working in the family business, I earned the nickname Little General by the time I was 12. I was all about facts, equipment, process, technology, etc. the hard stuff. The human element was secondary. Real leaders don't worry about the soft stuff, and they certainly wouldn't pursue a career in human resources or talent management. So, I, Nancy, I think that, that that is just so telling. And, you know, as you go on to talk about, um, you know, how we, we all do get tied up in, in the tools and the technology and the business models and, and all of those things that we think, even even to the point of looking at strategic planning, and and forgetting that it's actually people who execute against that. And so the the book really focuses in on how to come up with high performing leaders and teams that are different from the norm. Exactly. And that was sort of sort of my metamorphosis over time is really I had been such you know, I literally I would say as a child when we we had a, a business that we ran, the whole whole family was involved in it. But I would literally stand there as a 12 or 13-year-old and just sort of go, I'm surrounded by fools. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not very endearing and certainly not showing, you know, that way. But right. as I as I ended up doing quite a bit of work through college and also doing work in, in other businesses and then um, doing a lot of strategic planning and working with clients that, through Arthur Anderson, it really became clear and clear to me when you worked with good managers and good leaders what a difference it made. And then it certainly made a huge difference when you started really looking at the overall organization and how people, how organizations set a positive culture and how people more engaged certainly could be much more productive. Um, yeah. and so it was uh, so it was one of those things that, yeah, going through strategic planning, I was like, you know, there's really no difference, or the only difference in uniquenesses that are brought about in organizations is really through the people. So um, you better do a really good good effort and understand people and behaviors and understand yourself if you're going to be an effective leader. Right. Now, normally I'm interviewing people who have written those those tactical kinds of books that, that uh, you know, have a, a fairly... Uh, you know, easy to follow outline that that talks about all of the different components. Now, when you're talking about an allegorical novel that's using uh, a metaphor, you know, I think we we uh, will approach this just slightly differently. First of all, um, I we we probably should have asked those who are on the call live to tell us, you know, which one uh, which ones of them are golfers and which ones aren't, because you know, quite often when you have a metaphor like golf, if you're not familiar with some of the terminology. Uh, you know, you can get a little lost in that. And last week we had a very, very interesting guest who had used um, the terminology about uh, power tools, and and she related each of the different kinds of power tools to different skills that we need to have as leaders. So um, how would you like to guide us through understanding what your your book is about and how, how you uh, approach the storytelling um, I haven't had the pleasure of finishing the book, uh, so I, I, uh, I can't do that quite as effectively as, as if I had read it. But uh, basically, you do talk about the front nine and what it takes, um, you know, to, to master the front nine, and, and you know, how do you approach the back nine? But talk us through a little bit of why golf became the metaphor. Well, shamelessly, I wanted to reach as many uh, business people as I could and throw away that would make it more sort of edutainment, so to speak, and so mm -hmm. I am not at what any, if you see me on a golf course, you would know that I'm really not a very good golfer, 
you know, I'm, you know, I, I play maybe three or four times a year if I'm four. So <clears throat> the the story or the fable that uh, I created was basically on, you know, using the golf metaphor to help with sort of laying out some of the lessons learned and the things that I've seen over time. I've spent a lot of time working with a lot of dysfunctional managers, um, and I distinguish managers from leaders. They, they definitely were not people-oriented. They didn't know how right. to really inspire and motivate and, and create the right environment for people. Um, so I just sort of began to believe, think that, you know, that would be a good way to sort of maybe connect the business elements and the leadership elements to a story and to talk about it. And so it's really based on a lot of my experiences and sort of the, the characters in there are compilations of a variety of clients that I've had. And so for those who have not read it, it basically looks at taking a um, a consultant named Sam, so, or Samantha, Sam for short, and she ends up being called in by a CEO, president of a company, um, who she's done quite a bit of work for. And he, as he takes on his new position as president CEO, he <clears throat> has a, uh, a leader, a COO that he feels is not very effective, who has actually have a fairly high turnover in his group and is just not sort of towing the party line. And so um, as part of the coaching, she probably regrettably suggests that they spend some time out of the office talking about and getting, giving him some leadership coaching. And as a result, they end up going and playing a round of golf. And so she uses the golf um, metaphors to relate the leadership aspects that he needs to be addressing. Got it. So one of the things that you you uh, start off talking about is is just the whole challenge uh, that that they're facing in the story, and and how that you've got this this role of coach and therapist that emerges. So, you know, tell us how they get to the place where where they're actually you know warmed up and ready to play. Um, well, maybe to back up a little bit too, I, I looked at and I separated the front nine from the back nine because one of the things that many of you, it sounds like I've been in consulting and can hopefully relate to this, is that there's a lot of people who who may even have what it takes to be a leader and I sort of, I outline what those elements are. Um, I look at it as primary, sort of primarily six elements. So what is, you know, do they have the capabilities? Do they know, do they actually have sort of the foundational elements to be a leader? And you can look around in lots of organizations, and a lot of people might have that. But the second bucket, so to speak, of leadership has to do with effectiveness. And do they have what is necessary in order to be effective? Do they know what to do with those capabilities? And that's where we see a lot of managers who um, never really rise to the level of leaders because maybe they have some of the capabilities, but they don't have the effectiveness element to go with it. Right. I don't know if that sort of answered it for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so once you you lay out um, what is necessary, so in in having that capability and effectiveness, you you proceed to talk about the guiding values that people have. So, what can you tell us about uh, the dialogue that goes back and forth during that? Well, the fun exchange there is we, as like any good Saturday country club, they pair us or pair us into a foursome. So I am there with, or the Sam, the, care, the consultant coach is there with her 
COO who she's going to be coaching and they get paired up with two more people. And as one of the primary elements is the guiding values. And so um, one of that, one of the other gentlemen who's playing with him, she sees his golf cart and suggests to the person that she's coaching that maybe that other gentleman has not really put down the correct number. Right. She then, he then, you know, they talk a little bit about like, you know, how would how would that make you feel? Would you want to work, you know, play golf with that person again? Would you, you know, how would you feel about, you know, sitting next to him in a dinner at the, you know, at the country club or whatever? And you know, typically, and and most people would, you know, once they show that they don't have sort of that value system, um, they don't want to be around those people. They don't necessarily want to work with them. They don't want to be, you know, even socializing with people that they don't quote unquote, you know, respect their values. And also, they talk a little bit as they're walking around the golf course. Is the number of people who, number of leaders or heads of organizations who have fallen from, um, from the highest levels as a result of of their, you know, loss in values. Um, you know, this, I was writing this right about right at the, sort of at the towards the end of the whole Bernie Madoff thing. So just talking about Bernie Madoff or Bernard Ebers, who was the right. CEO of WorldCom, and we just go through a whole host of those Jeffrey Skilling and um, from Enron and Dennis Kozlowski from Tyco. I mean, there's just you just see all these major major falls from glory, so to speak, and it's really some of the major creation that are causes of that is they sort of throw their guiding values under the bus, so they really don't have clear guiding values. So we just start, we talk about that and it's just in terms of relating it to golf and then what would that mean in terms of business. Right, and, and the next one uh, I, I find interesting, it, it's the whole notion of self-awareness and, and the subtitle of, of the chapter is Duffer or Driver. And, you know, is is this taking a look at what people believe about their own leadership skills and, and the disconnect between the reality? Uh, and a lot, yeah, yes. And a lot of it is what I I look at is almost the emotional um, intelligence factor. I mean, do they have self awareness? Do they know how to understand who they are and then understand others and to be able to adjust their styles in order to be effective? So, so many people uh, as I run into that that seems to be one of the next big flaws or gaps in their areas. How do we help them become more self aware and how to work more effectively with other people? Got it. So that really takes us to to the next story, which is all about about listening, and then of course learning from from the ability to listen, and then figuring out how to engage others. That it's more than just showing up. Yes. Yes. So getting you know one of the things that we find, and again, I'm, I would suspect your audience would agree that when you've worked with again high level managers or managers that are maybe not quite effective. A lot of times they feel like, especially the younger, maybe the younger ones or less mature ones, or don't have the emotional intelligence. They think they need to know it all. They're they're embarrassed by showing any sort of chink in their own armor. That they're not really engaging other people, and they feel like they have to be the answer person for all things, rather than really asking questions and developing the skills in their other in their own people or their direct report. So it, it, we go through that as well as being able to listen, engage, and learn, and even. You know the top pros in the in the golf world, you know, have a slew of of 
entourage or team members and coaches and people that they listen to. And still, they have to make their own decisions. And they're still out there on in the tournaments doing the, the actual stroking of the ball themselves. But they're certainly using a lot of support and coaching um, and listening to re- and engaging others to really become more effective. Got it. So the next one is is a, all about networking, and no leader is an island is is the subto or subtitle for this particular um, section. So, so what what were they exploring there? Was, was there a tendency for an, uh, you know one of the players to to want to be on their own and and to think that they couldn't uh, interact with those that they worked with? And well, that was the bottom line message: is that as you go up the organization. Um, and as you learn how important your network and your relationships are, um, that is the critical piece of it. So being aware of who all is around you, you know, as you're, if you're a frontline supervisor, you know, starting to meet the other frontline supervisors. As you go up the pipeline, as you become more managers of managers, a manager of managers, that you, you know, understand and learn and meet more people in that breadth as well. So as you go up the ladder, as you definitely become higher level managers, you definitely want to have not only internal, but you definitely want to be building that outside network. Um, hopefully you're doing it from the get-go, whether it's college or high school or whatever, but you're building those networks. And the same thing is, is important when you're using that analogy with, with golf. <clears throat> Got it. So then, then you talk a little bit about competency. And and you know I mean I've heard so many times when uh, when people will describe certain people in in leadership roles that you know they've really f- just faked it until they made it you know that they don't really have what it takes. And you know you can't be you can't know everything about everything so you have to but I think when you're looking at leadership and you're looking at you know, going up the pipeline and larger organizations. You certainly have to be competent in some key areas, and you have to, if you aren't, and the other things sort of build upon that, too, that if you, you also have to be able to listen and learn from others who are the specialists in those areas. But competency is a critical area, and and sometimes it doesn't translate to different industries. I think in the book we use Nardelli, who came out of GE, took over the head of, of Home Depot, uh, from the outside, you know, it looked like a really oh, this is a great great hire. But he did not have um, retail experience, and you saw him implementing a lot of more GE types of methods in an environment for, of retail that was not going to fly very well. So clearly, a competent, intelligent person, but definitely, you know, did not do well in a whole other environment. So his competency in that new industry was just not there. So competency is, is obviously critical. And, you know, you can be do everything else well, but if you don't have the competency, there's, there's a major hole that somehow you have to plug or develop or, you know, take a different position. Right. So by by the end of the first nine, you know they're they're pretty exhausted, and and so then the next chapter you're talking about courage and passion. Uh, so before they get to the back nine, yeah, courage and passion is obviously critical. I mean, like any, it's, a, it's one to me. It's one of those foundational elements that if you aren't willing to step up and take the risk or step up and and be passionate about what you're doing, it's going to be hard to 
develop passion amongst your team. Um, so it's that courage to make decisions. It's that passion about what you're, what you care about, what you're doing. And those are all the, the critical parts of, of what we look at in terms of leadership and promotability, so to speak. So then as they, as they move into the back nine, um, you start talking about getting the right people in the right jobs. And we actually talked about this uh, actually several times in the last couple of weeks of, you know, figuring out what people both love and do well and recognizing that there are things perhaps that they do well that they actually hate uh, and that they continually, uh, you know, allow themselves to get put into those things that they do really, really well, but, you know, that just don't, um, you know, bring out that passion and creativity. Exactly, and there's some, I look at it as almost a pie chart of all the different things that make up a person. And if I'm looking at helping a client identify what's the right profile of people or person that they should be bringing in. And you definitely want to look at intelligence. You want to look at education and training. You want to look at their um, uh, interest level. You know, are they even interested in this kind of work? Right. Um, you, know, a whole, you know, there's a whole host of things. But there's a major element there, which I say is probably about a quarter of the pie, that really is about how they perform the work. So one is everything else being given equal. If everything else was good, I want to look at really is their interest level there and how will they perform the work? Do they fit the work? If I need somebody who is very detail-oriented, are they going to be, you know, do they have that detail um, DNA? And there are tools out there that we can use in the hiring and promotional process that helps identify what those what strengths you do need in a position, and when you're looking at candidates, do they fit? Right. So, like in the travel industry, you know who, you know, what's the profile of successful uh, travel sales associate? Right. You know, for that for a particular company or in a particular area, there's tools out there that we can use that helps us identify that, and we can then by looking at that and studying it and using these anal- human capital analytics, we're able to actually identify here's the profile that you should be hiring to based on your um, company. Right. Did I lose you? Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can hear you. Okay. So we're able to actually identify those things and also at the same time help leaders understand and build more self-awareness to understand their own patterns and profiles so that they can actually hire people that are going to be successful, put them in places where they're going to succeed versus fail. Right. They can do that ahead of time, yeah. So it makes a huge bump in sales. We see the top performers in a lot of the studies that we do will be, when we look and start looking at their personality and their, their profiles, see a huge bump in terms of there may be producing sales of two to three or four or five hundred percent or more than the lower producers. And there may be something distinctly different in terms of that profile that we can identify. So rather than keep hiring people who are going to not be successful and be in pain in the positions, we can help them identify what's the right person to get to the right job. Now, this next one is one that really resonates with me because in in my consulting practice, we do a lot of high-level strategy work, which by its definition means that we're typically dealing with the C-level individuals. 
But it's so amazing to me that not only do we have companies that don't share the strategy with uh, all levels within the company um, and they don't work to create that shared vision, um, but they actually don't align the metrics. They don't align the rewards and, and the metrics with what the goals are. And, I mean, it sounds so extremely intuitively obvious that you should do that. But the the title of this next chapter is actually Don't Expect Great Results If You Play in the Fog. And even those of us who don't play golf, you know, can can really visualize that. So talk to me a little bit about that uh, that part of the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example where, I mean, the players get to have a chat about being out there. And so I end up, they end up getting challenged a bit. So I, they're, they're, they're good good guys in the book to go along with some of the things I throw at them because they're very interested in sort of having this ongoing discussion as we walk around the golf course. And one of the things I make them have them do is actually blindfold them and they then get to golf or tee off and, and see how well they do. Um, and then talk about, you know, how fun is that, you know, and right. how well does that, you know, does, does it help them get to their goal? And we obviously correlate the fact that, you know, if you can't see where you're going, you know, how do you know you're going to get there? Um, and so when we start to talk about, well, you know, how well does that whole shared vision cascade throughout your organization, um, a lot of them realize, geez, we're not doing a very good job on that. So, yeah, they, they definitely, you know, if you think about it in anything, whether it's school, whether it's business, whether it's um if you don't know what the goal is, it's going to be hard to get there. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, again, it's just amazing to me how many companies don't see that. Or, you know, they've, they've had the same goal and the same vision for, you know, the last 10 years, and, and they, haven't, uh, they haven't tweaked it. They haven't, you know, dusted it off and, and said, you know, is this still the right thing? Um, you know, in my industry, we're, we're right in the midst of, of kind of a decomposition uh, of of the whole distribution infrastructure and travel. And, and, you know, I mean, some consumers may have read about it in the news, but, you know, people like American Airlines are, are bringing suit against, you know, one of their major distribution partners. The, in fact, the company... Uh, you know, very similar to one that they actually created themselves and spun out. Uh, and you've got U.S. Air also uh, uh, doing the same kind of thing against uh, another one of the distribution companies. And and where where all of these players don't uh, aren't getting along and don't see the value in the other parts of the value chain. And so I, I think that this kind of gets to the next uh, one. Uh, the next chapter is actually called Talk is Not Cheap. And I know that you're talking about communicating internally, you know, and, and how leaders communicate within their own company. But I, I think in many industries you actually have to apply this externally too, of, of taking a look at, at where do you fit in the value chain and, and, and you know, does everybody believe that disintermediation is the way forward? Yeah, it's, you know, it's absolutely critical, obviously. I mean, everyone talks about communication, but very few do it. And when we start looking at the profiles of some of the top leaders, they're not necessarily relationship or strong communicators. I mean, they can stand up and give a speech. It's written, but in terms of sort of building those relationships and building that communication, that isn't necessarily their forte. Um, so it's no surprise. And then sometimes they're not as high in trust with people, so they're not willing to not only communicate but also 
sort of share cascade the vision. I mean, some of them, as you probably run into, there's still a lot of old school where let's just get the top couple guys and we'll go off site, we'll create the vision, and then we'll lock it up because we don't want anybody to know about it because we see it as, you know, a, a big competitive advantage that we don't want others to know about. Well, right. I always go to them as like, you know, you don't think the other guys are just as smart? I said, it's not in what the vision is. It's in the fact that can you execute it? And the only way to really effectively execute it is to really involve the larger stakeholders or the stakeholders throughout the organization. Right. So I've done things where we do top-to-top meetings where we'll take the C-suite of one company who's got a strategic alliance with another, and we do top-to-top meetings and really see how they, how the the meshed of their visions come together and where they need to really work together. Right. I will say that there's a side note here because this is a sort of a, a little bit of an interesting story. I do a fair amount of pro bono work in. Um, and public education, and one of the things that I ended up doing was running the Western region for Arthur Anderson, their, our School of the Future effort. And one of the things we did, we partnered with a school district, and I was very fortunate to work with probably one of the, well, who was quoted as the founder of the meeting facilitation and one of the top strategists in the, in the country, um, Michael Doyle. And we started a process working with the school district, which you can imagine there's so many contingency uh, constituencies there and bringing them all right. together from parents students to teachers to administrators, so on and so forth. And one of the things we did is we we took the core group, took them through a, a process of visioning, a two-day visioning process, and then we ended up cascading that through and ending up having about 1,200 people from the community go through it um, and through different versions, various uh, sessions of it. And at at one point where I really knew it had finally, it really had taken hold is when the superintendent really owned it. And what he did at one of the uh, meetings, um, it was a board meeting, and we had created a not only a vision, a really big gestalt of a vision, but also a profile, what the graduate profile should be in the year, whatever it was, it's been many years ago. And during one board meeting, the board members were starting to sort of waver and they were not going to fund. This is, again, before all our current economic crises. But they decided they were not going to fund, uh, say, foreign education, for uh, foreign languages in the junior high level. And all of a sudden there's sort of a commotion going on at the table and the superintendent is sort of shuffling around and asking stuff. And finally the board meeting sort of stopped and you know, asked the superintendent, like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I, I'm trying to get some white out. Because if we're going to stop doing that, then I need to go wide it out off of the community vision of what we want for our schools. And so, and then every time that we sort of waver and decide we're not going to go along with what the community has asked us and told us what they want, we're going to start, you know, widening that out. So pretty soon we won't have any vision. And so it went from like a, a zero five vote to a five zero vote All in right. a matter of minutes. But the power of the vision was that the community had come through and now the leaders were the stewards to make sure that that vision happened. And everybody in the community was supportive of it, um, bought into it, and expected it. Right. So That's very powerful. I, I was going to uh, just share another quick story about um, if if you are ever in, uh, in a quandary about what you need to do in business, go ask your local grade school if you can teach a short course on business to the fourth grade. And go in and tell them your business problems and let them try to solve them. 
Um, I did that several years ago. We had to close down a business that um, that I had raised a lot of money for, and we had built out technology. And uh, I, I knew we were going to have to shut it down, but I was teaching my daughter's fourth grade uh, class about entrepreneurialism. And don't you know that all the things that they said to do were precisely what we should have, but without <laughs> all the politics and the angst. So uh, <laughs> that that's my uh, educational story. So we already talked a little bit uh, about aligning the right incentives, which, uh, you know, the next uh, – chapter uh, and i i love the analogy here at the front about uh, that a leader is really the the organizational chiropractor of getting everything aligned and and i think that that is so important but it ties in also to the next one which is all about providing the right resources and and the title of this one is you know is corporate smoking something so i would love to know what what was behind that one well, there's a lot. Well, I'm sure you've got a whole host of stories as well, and maybe everyone else on the phone too, where we do these just incredibly insane things in organizations where they, you know, we're going to go, we need to cut 10%. It's like, really? Okay, well, you know, we understand there's economic bad times and we've all got to pull our belts back. And I have one large client right now that I'm working with and, you know, sitting with them just the other day, and they cut. 30% out of, of people out of their group or, and they're transitioning out. However, they did not cut 30% of the work. So people are just at their wit's end. They're tired. They're exhausted. There's, you know, there's a chance of you know, impact on safety and everything else, which is a huge deal for this organization. So it's, just, it's that insanity that occurs constantly in organizations. Where I work with another group, another consulting group, where the whole intent is we can show incredible Incredible results by going into very large companies and help them if they do need to cut, cut amazing amounts. He, this one gentleman, he, he has a client back in the Midwest, and they went into a, I think it was a big utility company and was able to cut seven hundred million dollars or something out of their budget. Um, but he does it in a very, very we do it in a very, very collaborative way, and we do it from the ground up, where you know. They get to really identify. You have to get the buy-in of the board and everybody else, and they go to they can go to the street with here's what we're going to be cutting, and then we actually they we go in and help the organization do it. But no people can get cut unless the work gets cut. The work has to get cut first, right? And generally, it's all this other sort of fat stuff that the guy everybody on the front lines knows that there's this silly waste going on, and you can cut things out that way. So. I guess I sort of went off on a different tangent here, but yeah, you definitely have to provide you have to provide the right resources, and you have to provide whether it's people, whether it's you know training, whether it's equipment, whether it's processes. I mean, you have to you can't just expect people to right. um, you know do the work and and you ended up handcuffing them. I mean, that's just you know it's not exactly. that's not sane. <laughs> So, again, in order to be able to be effective, you then have the right people in the right jobs. You've created a shared vision. You're you're now all communicating. You've aligned the right incentives, provided the right resources. And so the last piece of it is execute, monitor, and improve. So tell us about that. Well, And a lot of this is, is obviously coming out of dimming. I became a very strong proponent of dimming in the management philosophy, philosophies he had. And you really have to be a learning organization. So you don't just think that you've done it and you're done. You definitely have right. to keep monitoring it, reviewing it, improving upon it. You know, Whatever you learn, you want to you know, implement and, and adjust and change. And you really want to make sure you've got, you're using good data to, to analyze, you know, are you improving? Um, so many organizations are, are just sort of into the 
uh, flavor of the month club. And so, you know, oh, we didn't do that. That didn't work. So let's throw this out and try this over again or come up with something new. And so you get a lot of this herky jerky stuff going on in organizations where they're not really learning. They're just jumping from one thing to another. And, you know, I always say, really, you know, this is a business. We need to, we want to make it profitable. We want to make it a good. Let's learn from what we're doing, not not just keep changing. And it doesn't mean you right. don't change on occasion, but you certainly want to be much more of a learning organization. Okay, so as as they move on to the 19th hole, which uh, for those who do play play golf, that is actually when you uh, circle back to the clubhouse and everybody grabs a cold one. You know, you take a look back at uh, where we started, and you talked about those things that were the leadership capability elements. So the world-class leader has to have those guiding values and that self-awareness, listening, learning, and engaging others, expanding their network, uh, you know, having that level of competency and surrounding themselves with competent people and then having the courage and the passion to do what they need to do and then combining that with those elements of leadership effectiveness that we just went through, right people in the right jobs, creating a shared vision, communicating, aligning the right incentives, uh, providing the right resources, and then executing those plans, monitoring and improving, which are the whole um, elements of, of effectiveness versus just capabilities. And and that when you have those things all together, you do end up with set success. So at the end of the book, you you uh, talk about looking back and, uh, you know, one year and many holes later, the dialogue that goes on uh, between uh, the ones who had played golf that day. Yeah, and the most uh, the most interesting or the most uh, interesting one I think is the fact that we you know I, we go back and these are you know based on some real examples or real real right. composites of people, but the person who originally was needing the coaching, uh, I always look at it. It's not just him; it's also his team. How to right. make them all integrate and work together, and then also his boss, the president. I mean, he is. His EQ was not as high as it needed to be as well. So how for him um, to really better understand each other and to work more effectively together so that down the road um, they honor and use each other's strengths versus looking at those as weaknesses. Um, And so that's a lot of the intent. And it's interesting. I had a a middle-sized, I guess fairly large company. It was about a $5 billion revenue company and I had the CEO and the COO come after me, come up to me after a training, and they had been sort of contentious, as an example. They were always sort of at each other's, at odds with each other, and it was because they didn't really understand each other. They didn't even, they didn't really have a good self-awareness of who they, what their strengths were, but they certainly didn't know that, geez, they were, you know, very different, but could be very complementary. And it was very interesting at the end of this session that the CEO came up to me, and it was gentleman Steve, and he sees this. I, you know, now I know why I don't get along with Terry, and um, because you know we just see things differently. It's, it's right. just the way we are, and it's, it's like this light bulb went on. And he tells me this little example that they'd had a little run-in just within a couple of weeks after or before that. And literally five minutes later, Terry comes up, recounts the same story, and says, "Now I understand why Steve and I don't get along." And he goes, "It's, it's just because we look at things differently." He goes, "But now I know how to work with him." So. You know that's that's the good news. Over time, it doesn't. It takes a bit of time, but um, if they're open to it and they want to get better and they want to help their organizations be healthy and profitable, 
in good places for people to work, there are it isn't mutually exclusive. You can actually you can do it. <laughs> right, right. Well, Nancy, I I so appreciate you walking us through this book. It you know it's it's unlike uh, most of the books that we talk about. As I said, it's a, a very very engaging story about you know the real life dialogue between these individuals. But uh, one of the things I love about the book, um, well, first of all, I I, I love just the clarity of the graphics of, of the building blocks that it takes to get to the competency and, and the leadership capabilities. But at the end, you have a, a very, very practical scorecard. And uh, my husband and I are going to a, a leadership thing at, at church tonight and all day tomorrow, and they had us take this very, very long uh, you know, uh, assessment about our, our gifts and our capabilities. And every single one of the scales was, you know, I mean, it was like the one to five thing, but but they were all exactly the same in the description. They didn't tailor them. But I love what you've done in, in taking a look at, at the guiding values and that you're you're either unsure and they're changing or you're clear and in your unbending. And and so making that very, very specific. And another one later talks about competency and, and whether you're limited uh, in your competency to one core discipline or extensive in, in multiple core disciplines. So I think as people buy your book and, uh, you know, enjoy the story and, and, you know, are thinking about those building blocks in their own lives, at the end there's this uh, very, very practical plan for how you can actually improve and, and uh, you know, have your own very, very solid uh, leadership plan for yourself moving forward. And it occurs to me that that would also be a really great tool to use with your team. Absolutely. So it does. It gives people a good sense of where they are as a group or as an individual. And say, geez, there's there's areas where we really need to come together. And there's things that I need to work on individually or I need to work as a team. So definitely the intent was to give them some sort of good tools that people and organizations could take forward and expand upon and make better, but at least uh, start a dialogue about it. Got it. Well, Nancy, I so appreciate the time that you've given us today. I do want to um, open up the um, the questions if we do have anyone who uh, would like to either comment on some of the things that Nancy shared or if you uh, have a question that you'd like to pose to her uh, before we go on to the rest of our call. And don't forget to take your phone off mute. Nancy, hi, this is Carolyn. Um, looks like we're in the same area here in San Francisco. Hi. And, um, yeah, I'm really impressed at how comprehensive um, the, the topics that you're covering are in terms of leadership. You really seem to get your arms all the way around it, which is um, impressive. It, it, as you think of, of the different engagements you've been involved in, the different clients, if you look at the different principles that you've outlined, are there a couple of, of characteristics or um, as you evaluate them and, and what they're lacking and what they struggle the most with, are a couple characteristics that really come to the fore as, as universally the toughest uh, principles to put in place, or is it fairly evenly distributed? Um, well, I think well the tougher ones, I'm always hoping that they have guiding values. Now, they may not have articulated it, but you definitely if, you know, if they don't have a good value system, then you know it, it's hard to put that in place. I mean, either they're, they've got integrity or they don't. So. <laughs> That's that's a really tough one, but that's pretty one easy one to sort of analyze fairly quickly and then decide like I'm not sure I can you know I can't fix that you know mm-hmm. um, now if it's just because they haven't articulated or they don't know how to uh, ap- apply it as well then you might work on that. I find in, in leaders some of the biggest issues for them is really that self awareness. Um, they think that 
there's a large portion that they think that everybody should be like me because I'm great. And um, that's not true. (laughs) If you had everybody the same profile, um, most likely the business would not succeed. Um, So getting that self-awareness and getting them to start to recognize that there are very strong complementary gifts and strengths that you don't have that you do need in your organization. And there's some that, depending on where you are in your S-curve, so to speak, that you might need more at certain times than other times. So I think, to me, those are some of the key sort of capabilities that they need right off the bat. Um, And those sort of play out throughout the rest of the areas of listening, learning, expanding the network, and that sort of stuff. And then I think they have a hard time translating to the actually, you know, what do you do with this? I mean, they really need to get the right people the right job. And again, that has to do with if they've got that self-awareness and recognize they need different types of people other than themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really, so, you know, sort of examples, but, you know, before I was sort of enlightened, I might just want to hire people that are like me, you know, short, dark-haired, annoying, you know, high authoritative, bossy people. <laughs> um, that probably isn't going to fly. So making sure that they get the right people in the right jobs and then release the whole thing. It's sort of, they all sort of tie together, but it helps sort of like, give people a sense and leaders a sense of what they really need to be doing as well as have. Good. That's helpful. Thanks. You're welcome. We should get together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard Chicky talking about wine. That seems like an obvious uh, obvious match. Clearly. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's got to be a trip to Napa sometime in my future. <laughs> yeah, uh, Carolyn, you're in Sausalito. I'm over actually in Danville, so I'm pretty close. Oh, yeah. And we're always we're always looking for more associates. <laughs> so we'll advertising right, there. Great. So good. So Nancy, why don't you let folks know the best way to connect with you? We will have your profile, or I believe uh, Patty has already uh, created your profile on the Executive Girlfriends Group private platform, where we can put links to your website and various other ways. But are you active on on Facebook or on Twitter, or do you prefer that people just contact you? Uh, you know, by phone or via via email. What's your preference? Um, the best is I am I'm fairly actually effective in LinkedIn, but I we have our website. Our company at website is Leaders, so Leaders Inc. dot com L E A D E R S hyphen I N C dot com. Or there, anyone's more than welcome to contact me directly at um, N Clark at Leaders Inc. dot com, and our office phone number is nine two five. Eight three one nine one zero zero. So phone call, email, and all that information is on the website as well. Okay, terrific. Well, we will make sure it is also on the Executive Girlfriends Group site uh, because quite often that's the way people uh, get in touch with our speakers. So, uh, Nancy, again, I really, really appreciate it. You are welcome to join uh, our call any any Friday. We are always here at 4 o'clock Eastern uh, every week, and uh, we publish our speaker schedule on executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, uh, which is our public website. And then uh, our private uh, website is where we post the audio every week without commercials, and then our audio is also available on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, so we will send you that link uh, so that your network will, will be able to hear hear this today. Great. It was my pleasure, and thanks so much for everyone who was kind enough to dial in and listen. I appreciate it. Okay. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, and I am going to take the phone uh, off of record at this juncture, so bear with me for a second. <laughs> 